Let's continue to pray. Gracious God, as we gather around your word this afternoon, we pray that you would tune our hearts to understand you better, to know you better, and to relate to you better, including with a spirit of thanksgiving. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As usual, you have um, a rather lengthy um, handout um, here, and you also have um, an outline, I trust, a one-page outline, eight and a half, one side, which uh, gives you kind of a bottom-line summary of what I want to say today. And it's also available on Zoom, I think. I, I trust that, um, thank you, Megan, you were able to put it up. Let me begin by just sort of orienting us to what we have been doing. Uh, we finished the Gospel of Matthew several weeks ago, and for the past month or so, we have been doing a series on the book of Psalms. And this series on the book of Psalms is not so much intended to go through all 150 Psalms. That would take us longer than I have time as your interim rector to go through, and it might even tax your patience. You might be looking for a little bit more variety. What we're wanting to do is our survey of the Psalms is to look at the whole book quite generally, to kind of move through and fly over the forest of the book of Psalms, as it were. And we've begun to do that. And as we've done so, we've noticed that the book of Psalms has a structure to it. That Psalms 1 and 2, for example, are meant as an introduction to the Psalms that tell us that uh, the person who meditates upon this book, this book of the law, will grow and flourish in his or her life. And according to Psalm 2, that the book of Psalms is about the king of the Jews, whom God has placed on the throne, and in whose hands, unbeknownst to them, are as the fate of the world. We also notice that the book of Psalms has a five-book structure, just like the five books of Moses. You don't see this in your prayer books if you're an Anglican, but if you turn to your Bibles, you'll see quite clearly that they have a five-book structure. And Psalm 95 comes within book four, and that will be mentioned in uh, just a minute. And then finally, Psalms uh, have a conclusion. Psalms 146 to 150 take us out on a theme of praise. Our focus over the past several weeks has been mostly on the Messianic Psalms, uh, and Psalm 2, as I said a few weeks ago, casts a messianic shadow over the whole book of Psalms, so that in one way or another, whether by invoking typology or analogy, most of the Psalms can be interpreted with reference to Jesus, at least secondarily. But today we're going to deviate from that messianic focus by choosing a Psalm rather randomly. And I've chosen Psalm 95. Psalm 95 has a partner psalm, 110, which is the only psalm in the Psalter which is titled a psalm of thanksgiving. So Psalm 95, by virtue of its association with Psalm 100, psalm 100 a partner, uh, indicates that this is a hymn of thanksgiving, something we can tell from the content, if not the title. So it's apropos for Thanksgiving weekend that we look at this psalm. And for those of us who are familiar with um, our prayer books, you'll notice that this is what we call the Venite. Venite is Latin for the word, O come. And it is the best known canticle probably in uh, the prayer book and is invoked more often, uh, I believe, than any other um, canticle or psalm. 
But in some cases in the Psalter, in some cases in the prayer book, it doesn't include the third stanza. Because if you flip over to page two, you'll notice that the third stanza kind of uh, is jarring. It's as though uh, this psalm of thanksgiving is interrupted by a solemn warning. Um, it's almost like um, somebody comes in with a somber tone and, and interrupts this service of thanksgiving with a harsh warning saying, don't harden your heart as at Meribah when your ancestors tested me. And it actually ends on a bit of a sullen note. And so today we want to look at Psalm 95 and see, in effect, and here's the title, three ways, by God's grace, to become more thankful people. Three ways, by God's grace, to become more thankful people. Psalm 95. But... Let's hit the pause button for a moment. We're poised to look at Psalm 95, but I want to sort of par provide part of the background to our consideration of Psalm 95 by taking you on a little bit of a sidetrack. It's relevant, and it pertains to what we did last week at the, um, at the parish retreat. About 15 of us went to um, cottage country last week, and we heard a discussion by Dr. Jeremy McClung on the theme of Thanksgiving. And I want to draw your attention to page seven of your handout, because it is the handout that Jeremy McClung gave us. And it indicates several things that are relevant to Thanksgiving that we will see again in Psalm 95. Everybody got um, a handout? Are we, are we short? If we're short, uh, you might be able to. Roger has, uh, Roger has one. Okay. People are with us? That's great. There is a pattern for the Christian life that consists of an understanding of God's grace, which leads to gratitude, which leads to obedience. And the reason why I'm drawing our attention to this is because that mysterious third stanza that interrupts Psalm 95 with this harsh warning is a call to what normally comes after thanksgiving in a biblical pattern. We experience God's grace, stanza one and two. We experience God's gratitude, stanza one and two of Psalm 95. And then we are called to obedience in stanza number three. And I want to invite you to look over uh, pages seven through 10. There is an exercise at the end that's appropriate for thanksgiving that I hope will heighten your experience of thanksgiving this weekend. But I simply want to highlight a few more things on page 7 and then on page 8 that will set the context for our consideration of Psalm 95. Dr. McClung points out that there are three ingredients of gratitude. You have to have three things to be grateful. You need a giver. You need a gift. And you need a recipient. And in each case, we have such with the good news of God and the gospel. The giver we believe and affirm is God. And that giver, we believe, has to be well-intentioned. This is not somebody who gives you um, a smoke bomb or you know, uh, uh, leaves a skunk at your front door. This is to be a giver who is well-intentioned, which God is. We'll see that in Psalm 95. So you have to have a giver who's well-intentioned. Then you have to have a gift. And the gift doesn't necessarily need to be valuable. 
in monetary terms, but you have to value it. It could be of sentimental value. It could be a, an old shoelace from your mother's baby shoes. It may not be particularly valuable, but it has to be valued by you. And all of the gifts that God gives us are valuable and ought to be valued by us. And then comes the recipient. And here's where thanksgiving differs from praise. The recipient needs to acknowledge um, his or her undeservedness. Uh, Dr. McClung last weekend pointed out that uh, when you get your salary check, uh, you don't immediately call the uh, bank or the employment officer and say, thank you for my salary check. You earned it. It's what uh, is coming to you. And so the recipient needs to be aware of the fact that he or she um, is undeserving. While we're on the recipient, let me just mention briefly the difference between thanksgiving and praise. Praise is uh, extolling the character of God. The word praise in the Old Testament is a word that is used in a secular context for boasting about somebody. It's what you do when you watch uh, your favorite football player uh, run through the crowd and score a touchdown. You say to your friends, did you see what he did? He dove over to this guy and he ran down here and he ran down there and he placed um, the ball in the end zone. You are um, extolling and bragging about the thing that you are drawn to. That's praise. Thanksgiving is not so much interested in the giver, the football player or whoever, but it is uh, focused on the recipient. It's what you do in response to the goodness of God. And so thanksgiving is our response to God's act of kindness and goodness. It's what we do in response to what God has done. So that's what we learned from um, our weekend. And I just want to re refer you to the page um, eight, because we're going to see this come up again in Psalm 95. You flip over to page eight, you'll see that these three elements play a role in our gratitude towards God. We need to understand that there's a giver who is loving, that there are gifts which are valued, and that we are undeserving. After all, if we deserved it, we'd just be getting what we deserved, and it wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be something that we necessarily need to express thanks for. And Jeremy pointed out last weekend that where any one of these elements is diminished, God's love, a sense of God's gift, or a sense of our undeservedness, if any of them is shrunk, we have a distorted understanding of thanksgiving. So if you look at the squished triangles on the middle of page 8, uh, the triangle would normally be equilateral, but if you shrink the God factor, in other words, if you don't believe in God, or you have a deistic understanding of God, or some kind of a diminished understanding of God relative to that that we find in the Bible, uh, you're going to be uh, less believing, you're going to be less grateful, and if you don't believe in God at all, you're going to be just blasé. Uh, you might be grateful for the people that have come into your life, but you will not be grateful to God if you don't believe in God. Richard Baucom in one of his many books pointed out in talking about Thanksgiving that we don't very often feel an obligation to thank the toaster oven for making us a hot piece of bread. It's a, it's a toaster oven. It, it did it, but it's not as though it has a personality. It's not as though it, it, it has any kind of entity within itself that makes us want to be grateful. And so to talk about thanking the toaster oven uh, would lead to cynicism because um, the toaster oven is not a, is not a thing. 
Um, and so if we believe that the world has been created by God, um, then we are going to avoid cynicism. And to those who don't believe in God, our belief in God and our willingness to thank God is something about which they would be cynical. The second element has to do with the diminishment of the gifts. If the, if the gifts diminish, um, we uh, become ungrateful. We just don't have a sense of what those gifts are. And if we don't recognize the gifts that God has given us, and we don't appreciate them for what they are, we just kind of gravitate towards more gifts. And where we belittle sin, where we fail to reckon with our own undeservedness, we can become selfish and narcissistic. Or we can have a sense of entitlement. We live in a world where there is a sense of entitlement, where people feel as though I deserve everything that I get. And we're constantly told, you deserve that new washing machine or that new ride from the car dealer or whatever. So those are the things that we need to keep in mind when we think about Thanksgiving. We need to have a high understanding of God's love, a high understanding of God's gift, and a rather low understanding of our own worthiness and acceptance before God. So I want to suggest that we take that into our examination of Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is tailored with three stanzas. And stanza one, which is in verses one to five, uh, gives us a reason why everyone can be thankful. Um, if you are new to the church and you are exploring Christianity and you have a sense that there is a God out there that you want to be thankful towards, um, it's almost as though verses one to five are tailored for you. It says, come on, let us, and here I'm using the translation that's on page one, and it's rather literal from the, from the Hebrew text. It says, come on, let us shrill to the Lord. Let us joyously bellow to the rock of our salvation. Let us approach his presence with thanksgiving. Let us joyously bellow to him with psalms. So there's an invitation to give thanks. And then comes the question, why? Well, here's something that everyone can affirm. For a great God is Yahweh, and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are his. To whom belongs the sea? He it was who made it, and the land which is transformed. So if you believe in a creator God, you have ample reason to give thanks. Thank you, God, that you made this world. And there are lots of people in our culture who are affirming that this weekend, and rightly so. God is the creator of the world. It's a good world. We have much to be grateful for. We have food to eat. We have uh, scenery to enjoy. And God is good. So that is first by way of a general uh, kind of welcome, that anyone can be thankful because of God's character. And here implicit are two features of God's character. The fact that God is a creator is emphasized, but I've also included God's love because it's evident uh, or implicit in the description there and is made more explicit even in stanza number two. I want us to notice something about verse two uh, and verse one. Let us shrill to the Lord. Let us joyously bellow to the rock of our salvation. These words are words that are um, over the top it's not just kind of, uh, we thank you, O oh Lord, just good, but it's more like, yeah, who? Um, the word ranan is used of um, a, a shrill. I don't know whether you've ever uh, been in a Semitic culture and have you seen people celebrating, but sometimes they'll just go, 
and they all just um, will go right over the top with their sense of excitement. And that actually is the word that's used here. And the second one, bellow, is used in the case of a war cry or in the case of a trumpet call. Now, some of us who are Anglicans at this point might be getting a little bit nervous because we like dignified worship, which it should be. Our worship is to be controlled and ordered. But it reminds me of the story of a Pentecostal who came into an Anglican service and was used to saying hallelujah and praise the Lord. And uh, the liturgy was continuing and the service was proceeding as it ought to be properly in a dignified fashion. And somebody said, the Pentecostal, hallelujah, praise the Lord. There was a bit of a silence and one of the Anglicans turned to the other and said, excuse me, we, we don't do that in this church. And another Anglican rightly corrected them and says, Yes, we do. We do after the collect for God's grace at the bottom of page 69. You know, it's, it's kind of refined, you know, and it's, it's, it's there. Uh, so this is a challenge, regardless of how we worship, to make sure that whether we do it overtly or whether we do it in, in spirit, is we are over the top. And so we should be. We have all kinds of reasons to be glad and to be uh, filled with uh, gratitude to God. And we're given here a reason. For God is a, for a great God is Yahweh and a great king above all the gods. And then it gives us um, a reminder of the extent of God's creation. He created the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains. So he created the lowest parts of the world and the highest. And then recalling Genesis 1 where he separated the sea from the dry land. He separated one extreme from another. So what the psalmist is doing is he's going kind of from the alpha of the land to the omega of the sea and from the alpha of the depths to the omega of the sky and saying God created all of those things and of course everything in between it. And it was he who formed this with his hands. This stood in a more remarkable contrast with other views of the ancient Near East and the creation of the world, where you had a sea god and a mountain god, and you had an earth god, and you had a saltwater god and a freshwater god. The psalmist is saying, no, there is but one God, and he created everything, and everything is in his hands. So as we said together, not sung together, we can be glad for that, He's got the whole world in his hands. Brothers and sisters, he's got the whole wide world in his hands. And for that, we rightly ought to be thankful. Then in, uh, when we look at the other part of Psalm 95a, stanza number two, and here I'm about halfway, two-thirds of the way through your outline. In verses six and seven, we believers are given extra reason to be thankful. You'll notice that the psalm becomes more intimate. It's not just come on, a word which literally means walk, but in verse six, again, the pattern is repeated, but it says, come in, enter. And then it's not simply to make a loud noise of joy before the Lord, but these believers, these people who are children of the covenant are bid to do three things. They are bid to worship, they are bid to bow down, or bid in the knee before okay. Yahweh, our maker. Those of us who know Jesus Christ and who have a relationship with him, a covenantal relationship that is sealed by faith on the basis of God's grace, know that um, we have been uh, redeemed like the Israelites were out of Egypt. And so uh, we are invited into his temple and we are invited not just to shout with uh, praise and with thanksgiving, but to worship him, but to bow down before him and to bend the knee 
before Yahweh, who is our maker. And our maker emphasizes not just the fact that he is the creator, but he's the maker of the covenant. He's the one who has established an agreement with us. And he's the one who sent his son to die for our sins and to set us free from the bondage of sin by the work of Jesus on the cross and to set us free like he did the Israelites. So we're bidden here again more intimately and more tenderly, more reverently and with a greater sense of submission in verse 6. Enter into God's house and worship him. Enter into God's house and bow down. Enter into God's house. And it says they're blessed, but the word blessed has to do with making with the knees. Uh, we are to fall on our feet before this God, who is our maker. Why? Well, here explains the covenant in verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the flock of his hand. God is our pastor. God is our shepherd. And he has promised to hold us in his hands and to take care of us and to give us even eternal rest. Wonderful truths are these, my friends. Enjoy it for a second because the interruption is about to happen. Part two is announced in the third part of verse seven, and it's right at the bottom of page one. Oh, that right now you would but pay heed to his voice. Oh, but that right now you would pay heed to his voice. And then the psalmist continues. It's as though um, he's uh, breaking up the party. And we're told a third thing. And that third thing, my friend, has to do with our unworthiness and the need for obedience to go hand in hand with thanksgiving. And we're reminded of his story in Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites, like us Christians who have been saved, we've been brought into a position of salvation, and we began to forget about God, cynicism. Oh, I don't know whether God is really here or not. We became preoccupied with other things, with consumerism, with how much we had to eat or how little we had to eat, and we began to complain, and we began to grumble, and we became selfish, and we became disobedient. Those three things work against being the thankful people that we ought to be. Thank you. And so here comes a reminder, and it's hard. It says, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, and as in the desert at Massa, when your ancestors tested me, tried me, even though they saw my deeds. Even though there's a cross at the back of the church that reminds you what Jesus did, even though they've experienced salvation, even though they just experienced it literally, you know, walking through dry land across the Reed Sea, they still had forgotten me, and they've tried and they tested me. And then comes verse 10 and 11, God's judgment. He said, for 40 years, I felt a loathing for that generation. And I said, they waywardly err. They would not know my ways about them. I swore in my anger that they shall not enter my rest. My friends, that was the situation with the Israelites, and there's a lot that we can learn from it. Who can't relate to those words in verse 10? They literally are, they waywardly err. This is a word that is used for wandering. It's for um, throwing away the rule book and just doing your own thing, as it were. 
They did not, they would not know my ways. They gave up God's laws. We've just been through the Gospel of Matthew. It would be like sort of saying, boy, I learned a lot about Jesus and I learned a lot about the importance of following his teachings and fulfilling the Great Commission. But ah, uh, I'm going to do my own thing. My friends, that disobedience ties in and ruins one's understanding of God and the Christian life. It makes us ungrateful. It makes us cynical. It makes us arrogant, wayward, proud, disobedient. So that's the original context of Psalm 95b. The original context was in anticipation of a covenant at Sinai. You see, in, and this is just going to take a minute, stay with me. In the case of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they came to, into a covenant relationship with God. God said, I've saved you by my grace. You're redeemed, but I now want you to live by my stipulations. And if you live by my stipulations, things will go well for you. And if you don't, things will not go well for you. You will lose your land. Um, you, will, you, will, you, will, you will die in the wilderness. And so this was serious business for the Israelites, and in a, they failed the test. For 40 years long, they wandered around in the, in the wilderness, and they did not enter into the promised land. My friends, the point is important. We need to take seriously obeying God's precepts. And when we come together to worship and to express thanksgiving to God, we need to make sure that we're living a life that is consistent with that. But our situation is different because we're not under the covenant of Sinai. But we are under the new covenant, which was introduced in the book of Jeremiah, where God's gift of grace is unconditional and where we are called upon to respond in gratitude, not because we'll be damned if we don't, but because responding in gratitude is simply the appropriate response to a God who loves us, to a God who gives us gifts. Let me end on a, on, on a slightly serious note, and it comes kind of in the same way that stanza three comes. And it has to do with the New Testament understanding of grace. By grace you are saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We tend to think that God's salvation um, and his gift of salvation comes with no strings attached. And in a way that's true. But um, there's a professor of New Testament who has written in Glasgow, who's written a very important book on Paul called Paul and the Gift. And in that book, he takes us back to the first century and reminds us that when someone gives a gift in the Greco-Woman world, it was, it was a gift. You don't have to pay it back. It, 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 it's a gift. But there's an understanding of reciprocity. It's the idea of patronage. It's, uh, it happened in the medieval ages when someone would give, you know, Beethoven or one of these great composers a whole lot of money. They, they would give them money. And of course the money was free, but the expectation was that they're going to write symphonies. Yeah? So there is a sense, in the, even in a New Testament understanding, that we have been saved by grace, but yet at the same time, <laughs> Out of gratitude for the gift of God's salvation and his deliverance, we're called to be obedient. We're called to respond. It's not a free deal. It is. <laughs> but if you really understand what he's done, if you understand the magnitude of God's love, if you understand the many gifts that we've received at his hands, and if you understand that we are sinners who are unworthy to receive all that he has given us, what can we do? 
but by respond in gratitude with acts of love and devotion. We don't come to church to earn brownie points. We don't do good things to earn brownie points. Christians do good things because they are grateful for the overwhelming flood of God's love and the overwhelming inundation of God's gifts and our realization that I'm not entitled to any of this. Against the pattern of my culture, we don't deserve the many things that we have. My friends, three ways by God's gift to become more thankful. Focus on God's character, especially his love. God's many gifts, which we experience and remember this day, and our undeservedness. With that, I close apart from drawing your attention to the exercise that there is on pages 9 and 10. And I would encourage you sometime over the balance of the weekend, today, tomorrow, to just list God's gifts. There's a list there that Jeremy has given us on page 9 to personalize God's love. We have a hard time, some of us, believing that God really loves us to the extent that he does. You know, we can struggle with this. We can struggle with self-esteem that might be rooted in such things as appearance, uh, you know, body image, uh, the baggage that comes with uh, living in a sinful world. And so revel in God's gifts. Revel in God's love. And as um, Jeremy suggested last weekend, and as we have already said in our general confession, remember that we have sinned against a most merciful God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and we have what we have left undone. And that sense of our unworthiness combined with an appreciation of God's love and God's gifts, I hope will make us grateful, better followers of Jesus, in whose name I ask. Amen.